0: the early 1900s, he became a missionary known as the apostle to the illiterates. His educational background is really impressive. He studied at Princeton University. He got his um, uh, his, his he went to seminary at Union Theological Seminary, and at Columbia University is where he received his PhD in sociology. At the age of about thirty, he went to the Philippines as a missionary where he was a successful teacher, a successful writer, and an administrator in Cagayan and Manila. But after working for 14 years, developing tools to help people learn and read and write, he set out to pursue like his true desire, which was to live amongst the fierce Moros, a Muslim tribe in Mindanao, in the Philippines. One of his astounding accomplishments is how he developed a technique to reduce the moral language um, to, to writing. And all he did was use symbols that were closely correlated to their spoken words. But what was really amazing about this technique is that it helped the moral people learn how to read and write within a couple of hours, but it also enabled them to be able to teach it whether it was to their children and their friends. So it was really simple, and and he equipped them for them to be able to to practice and show others what they had just learned. Now, while he was trying to figure out how to connect with the people there, he began to journal about his, his experiences, his challenges. And when he passed away, they were all compiled and they were made into a book that's called Letters of a Modern Mystic where he goes into further detail about his experiences with God during his time there in the Philippines. Now many would argue that his greatest contribution came um, to be known as the game within minutes. It is a game to intentionally think about Jesus every minute of every day. Now in the middle of his loneliness and the challenges that he was facing while trying to connect with the moral tribe, he turned to God and began to practice the presence of God. Obviously, Frank lived in a tribe of people that were very different from him. Physically, there were slight differences, but the true barriers were both in their spiritual differences, because they were Muslim, and in the lack of common means of communication. He faced huge challenges there, and his prior successes and his accolades were unimportant and useless to the people of the Moral Tribe. They didn't matter. They weren't impressed. And in his very first recorded entry in his journal on January third of nineteen thirty, he writes, "To be able to look back and say that this this has been the finest year of my life, like this is glorious. This is great." But to be able to look ahead and say the present year can and shall be better, this is more glorious. Like this is better, because if we said such things about our achievements, we should be a consummate egotist. But if we are speaking of God's kindness and we truly uh, and we speak truly, we are but grateful. And this is what I do to witness. I have done nothing but open the windows and God has done the rest. The first entry is full of honesty and humility in the middle of his deepest heartache. He's defeated. He's lost. He's confused because things haven't gone as he had hoped or even planned. Frank shares that this has been the loneliest year and the hardest year of his entire life. Now, have you ever set out to do something for God, something that was good, something that you felt would even change the world, or even something that you wanted to change about yourselves, that you felt like God was nudging you in that direction and faced nothing but opposition? on the other side of that decision to the point where it made you even question if you might have heard God wrong. I think we've all been there. Frank LeBac puts to words to what the cycle of human effort does. When we want to seek change, we take matters into our own hands. We lean on our own understanding, on our own experience on our resumes that are full of accolades to make us believe that we're capable of doing anything that we set out to do. Now, there is partial truth in that. But at the end, when we do what we set out to do on our own will and our own strength, it is our ego that grows from what we accomplish. But the truth is, is that real change Even the deepest longings of our human of our hearts can only take place by the power of God. Like Frank LeBach said, all we can do, all that we're capable of doing is opening the windows, and God does the rest. This is our dilemma. How do we allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives and bring about transformation, the healing, the change that we so desperately seek from our deepest desires to be fulfilled? How do we do that? See, the Israelites, in their waiting, took matters into their own hands. They felt like their change, their salvation, was a matter of works. They believed that the answer to getting their lives back and being restored was a matter of simply keeping the laws, the commandments that God has spoken to them through Moses. It was their belief that they understood, even through their own history, how incomplete human effort can be. Because they always fell short. So in those efforts, the, the religious leaders took it upon themselves to make sure that all of God's people would maintain and keep up with the law. Within the first five books of of, of the Bible, which consist and make up the Torah, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are a little bit over 600 commandments. Now these commandments served as guidelines to show God's people how they were to live. But because of their circumstances, their situations, their continued oppression, their poverty, their suffering, and even God's absence led them to use these guidelines as laws that were meant to be kept with strictness. That coupled with God's silence made these guidelines seem more like punishment, which caused them to forget about God's love for them. God's silence, their suffering, led them to take matters into their own hands, to tighten their grip on their own fate, which led them to create an oral law called the Mishnah, which consisted of 1,500 extra rules and regulations for God's people to keep. It's a lot. In total, the Jewish people, the Israelites, fought hard to keep over 2,100 commandments, rules, and regulations because they felt if they kept them, everyone together as a people group, God would save them. It's hard to understand for us at times because in our cultural climate, rules, commandments, the ways of God seem more like restrictions than expressions of love. (coughs) Spiritual disciplines feel more like restrictions than expressions of love. Fasting, going to church, worshiping, praying, opening up your Bible, even rest, the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, it feels binding instead of uh, allowing them to be ways for us to experience God's love. These 613 commandments found in the Torah are a loving expression from the kindness of God. And in the human attempt to bring change quickly turned into an additional 1,500 rules that took away any feeling or expression of love if we're not careful and aware we can slip into making some of some of the same mistakes looking at what we do for God as a means for change looking at what we do for him as a means to to attain right standing with him We can easily fill our time with spiritual practices and never truly allow the Spirit of God to dwell and to do its work in us. Have you ever wondered why there's some people, and I I don't mean this in a a judgmental way, can be in church their entire lives and, and not produce, not be joyful, but if anything, they're the opposite. They're resentful. They're bitter. They're angry. It's because somewhere down the line, they created going to church, keeping a perfect attendance as receiving favor and grace from God, but never allowed God to penetrate their hearts. This is the trap that we can fall into. We will live in a shallow relationship with Jesus and always feel like he's at an arm's length. We will cry out for intimacy, we'll seek it, we'll do everything within our power to try to draw close to him, yet feel like the closeness that we so desperately desire is reserved for the chosen few. And to make matters worse, we will settle for this level of relationship with Jesus. Knowing all there is to know about him, his ways, we'll become really good at that. We'll even uh, quote scripture, but never we won't. But the challenge is that we'll never truly believe any of what we what we know, because we lack a personal experience with Him. So let's look at Matthew chapter one, verses twenty one to twenty three. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated to God with us. Matthew's words about the account of the birth of Jesus continue to cut deeper and deeper into the minds of his audience. The further we go into the birth of Jesus... His aim is now for something else to take place. For the words to be a vehicle for the Holy Spirit to create a stir in the hearts of those who are listening. Have you ever experienced a moment, I know it happens here all the time, where you listen to a church service message or maybe a song or maybe you're even reading a book and something gets stirred deep within your heart. That you're like, man, I think they're, he must have read my diary. Because so they're like speaking right to me. Now what's taking place there? See, that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, you know, we have remarks like, whoa, that person is anointed. That person is Gifted. That person is speaking right to me. They must have God's favor in their lives. Now, they're all partially true statements. But we can't make the mistake of mystifying these people and forget that it is the Spirit of God working through them to speak to us. Because what's really interesting about all this is that if you were to repeat what you felt spoke to you, Those words that you would say back would not be the words that came out of the mouth of the person speaking. They would be your version of them, but a version of how the Holy Spirit spoke and ministered to you. That's what Matthew is trying to do here. Allow the Spirit of God to work in the hearts of people. This is what an anointing is. An anointing is the filling of the Spirit of God in the person communicating, and that the stir that we feel is the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit touching the heart of that individual that's receiving it. The Spirit of God ministered to you through them, that's the stirring that we're talking about. That's what an anointing is. Is an experience of the Holy Spirit that's at work always. And to speak a little bit more when on the receiving end, that's stir in our hearts, that's often called a conviction. A conviction is when we become aware of an area of our lives that we may not have been aware of before or a decision that needs to be made, or an area that needs to be addressed, or maybe it's a character issue. I mean, the list goes on. Maybe it's a person we need to forgive. Conviction is awareness. And the journey of our souls, in the journey of our souls, awareness is key. Awareness is key not because it gives us the answer of why we haven't had a breakthrough in our lives. And, what, and, and, and to try to figure out and resolve and fix our issues. That's not the point and purpose of awareness. That's what we jump to. But rather, it's the awareness of the areas, the parts of our souls that are broken, the areas where we're hurting, but most importantly, the parts of our souls where the Lord wants, to inv- wants us to invite Him to so that we can receive His healing touch. Change from human effort will always leave something lingering behind. When we do the fixing, when we do the healing, it will always leave something lingering behind the fulfillment of the longing of our hearts without God can never be attained. It is only through God with His Spirit that change, healing, fulfillment can take place. This is the beauty of the promise of God with us, which is what makes this life As followers of Jesus, unique and beautiful. It doesn't make it perfect, it does not make it easy. Matthew is trying to cut through the uh, people, allow the Spirit to cut through the people, through the distractions, to their built up expectations and understandings and perceptions of what the Messiah would look like, how God would restore them and save them to open up their eyes to the availability and the accessibility, but most importantly, the power of God's presence, not just in their lives, but in our lives as well. God is no longer distant or silent. He is here and available to us all through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Trinity. Let's take a closer look at how all of this is possible in these three verses, because a lot's happening. But I really would like to draw our attention to the two names that are being used in this passage. The angel of the Lord, when speaking to Joseph, lets him know that a baby will be named Yeshua. In Hebrew, names often proclaimed something about God. Matthew uses the name Yeshua, which means Yahweh helps. Yahweh is another, it's, it's the Hebrew name for God. Or, may Yahweh help. Other translations, depending on which Bible you're reading, define it as Yahweh helps, may Yahweh help, or even Yahweh saves, or may Yahweh save. And some scholars have made the suggestion that it can be like a prayer, like Lord help, like a call for help that's often used as a cry of anguish. It is believed that this Lord help, Yahweh help, was the cry of Jewish mothers in their first moment of childbirth. And because of this, the name Jesus or Yeshua was commonly given to many children. The name of the Messiah is a cry of help and a a common name at that that was used by many. What Matthew is trying to say by proclaiming the name of Jesus is that God has heard their cry and is there to help through Jesus. He was no longer absent or silent. He had finally come through to restore his people through Jesus Christ. Jesus means the salvation of the Lord. So if you're taking notes, write this. Jesus hears our cry. He hears your cry and is here to help. It doesn't matter what you've been through, what you're currently going through. The truth remains that God hears our cries and Jesus has done all that is needed for us to be restored. For us to receive healing. We don't have to weigh ourselves down to try to prove our worth and earn God's love, earn his favor. God's healing touch on our lives is available and accessible to us all right here, right now. Following Jesus is more than just coming to church or reading our Bibles. It's about entering into a relationship A relationship where progress, for lack of a better term, is about growing in depth and in intimacy with God through Jesus. Jesus came to save us, not from our circumstances, but to bring healing to the human heart. Allowing Jesus to meet us, to meet our deepest needs and hurts, and allow His Spirit to bring healing to those deep parts of our hearts is truly the answer to our cries. And this is what following Jesus is all about. It's not about rules and regulations like we assume at times. It's not about restrictions. It's about allowing the love of God to touch us. And by his and, and allow his spirit to transform us. God's love will not push itself on you. It's always invitational. It's always up to us how much of God we want to allow into our own into our hearts. The kingdom of God is being ushered into this world by the transformation that takes place in inside every single one of us. That is the kingdom of God. Frank Laboc surrendered all that he knew about God and placed his trust in the works of the Spirit. He decided to try and fill his time thinking about God every minute of the day. Those who knew Him and he had shared with him what he was trying to do, dismissed them. They just simply didn't understand. And why would they? Very few seldomly devote themselves to think about God to that death. But when he looked at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, he came to the conclusion that this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was consumed by always thinking about God. Jesus was, and and this is true, Jesus was in fact in constant communion. He was in union with God. Hence, this is why Jesus was able to do the will of the Father. And in two weeks, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the will of God. What is the will of God? How do we do the will of God? Because many of us pray that prayer. Like, I just want to do God's will. I just want to do God's will. But what is God's will? Many, very few people know how to answer that. So we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But this is the same invitation that's extended to us. A devotion to God is an invitation to allow our thoughts, our feelings, along with our hearts and our wills, to be immersed in God. We must seek Jesus in order for Him to save us. And not just to seek Him in moments, but in moment by moment, intentionally think about Jesus and getting lost in His love. This is what communion with God is about, about union, about depth and intimacy with Jesus. This is what it looks like. To think about Jesus every minute of every day. Imagine what your life would look like if it was only for one hour that you thought about God with that intentionality. And you might be wondering, how is it possible? I work. I'm stuck to a computer. Like, I'm thinking, I'm taking care of kids. Like, I I barely have time for myself. Like, barely have enough time to read my Bible. How is this possible? The answer to this question is found in prayer. This is what prayer is. Jesus' life was a life of prayer. This is how he was always connected to the Father. Prayer moves us from being aware of God's presence to living in the presence of God. Let that sink in. Prayer allows us to move from just being aware of God. Oh yeah, he's somewhere in the background. If I'm really focused, I I know he's here. To living in his presence. To actually knowing and believing that he's here by your side. Prayer is about depth and intimacy. It's about having a conversation with him. It's about allowing him, God, I don't trust you right now. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to revisit that. That's true prayer. Prayer. It's not like, hey, let, let me do, there's nothing wrong with these prayers, but it's not about repeating a Hail Mary and just repeating words just to repeat the words. Later on in, in the book of Matthew, he talks about that. Go to a private room, close the door, and when no one's watching, open up your heart and talk to him. Fast forward in Jesus's life, in the prayer of Gethsemane, we actually see this, Right? Jesus says, I don't want to go through the cross. It is too painful. It's going to suck. Like I don't want to go through it. Comma. And there's a pause. How long was that pause? I don't know. But I would argue it was a few hours because his prayer went through the night. And then he says, God, let your will be done, not mine. Most of us, when we pray, we just we, we we it's like we we don't even look at that first part, and we skip to right. God, let your will be done. I do that. What happens is is we just we, we we miss an opportunity to experience God in a personal way by not addressing why I'm having a hard time, why I don't trust you, why I feel this attachment to this thing, and why it has a grip on me, why I'm having a hard time forgiving this person and doing his will. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. He shows us the way. The second name that we come across is Emmanuel which means, with us, Elohim. With us, God, or God with us, for His audience, this would have rattled them. It would have left them speechless. God not only was sent, uh, has sent Jesus to answer their cry, but God has now made Himself alive and present. His Jewish audience were very, very knowledgeable of the Torah. As kids, they would have had to memorize all five books, believe it or not, whether they were religious leaders or not. They all went through like um, seminary, if you will, but the the career, if you will, uh, of any Jewish boy was to be a rabbi. So for the first years, they would memorize every single book. So they all knew that. So when uh, Matthew says that Emmanuel is here, God is with us, this would have made them right away recall what we find in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, actually chapter, yeah, chapter 3, when it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the time of the evening breeze. The Garden of Eden was a beautiful place because it was God's creation with all of its splendor, with all of God's glory and wonder. But what made the Garden of Eden divine was not the creation but the fact that the presence of God was among all of his creation. God's presence walked in the garden so much so that his presence was not just felt, was not just heard, it was actually felt by Adam and Eve. They knew what the Lord sounded like. He was present. He was within reach. He was close, but above all, he was personal. A life that is devoted to Jesus is a life that is constantly dwelling and living in the presence of God. It's a life that is consumed with a communing, being united with God, because his presence is the only thing that can bring healing and wholeness to our lives nothing else I was having this conversation with a friend that I I think as a church like not not just us but like church as a whole we really do a disservice to people when we talk about healing we always talk about healing as like a one and done event we check it off the box yes that's an element of it that's a miracle but uh, but Healing is more of an adjective than a verb. Healing is more of a description than an action. Because healing is something that's continual. Matthew, would you mind putting up the title slide? Yeah. Please. The reason why this is a downworld spiral, if you were thinking about what that is, is because that is the journey of our souls. It's a downworld spiral to the depths of our hearts, to the cores of our beings, where we won't just see one thing one time. We're constantly going to revisit certain elements, certain things of our lives. But the deeper the 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 deeper we go with Jesus in intimacy, we're not left the same. So we will experience things differently. We will react to things differently, because our level of uh, our depth and intimacy with God is also different. But if we don't let go, if we don't trust, we will always be left here at the beginning. Always feeling like we're hitting a ceiling. Always feeling like God and Jesus is at an arm's distance. And different things trigger us. Relationships trigger us. If you have children, you know that they trigger you. You begin to see yourself like, I said I was not gonna do that, but I saw my mom do or my dad do, But I'm literally doing the exact same thing I said I wasn't going to do. But we're not the same. Healing is a description of what the power of God is doing in our lives. Because the truth is, the reality is, is that in my brokenness, me as Lalo, as a a pastor, whatever you want to see me, under the right circumstances, my brokenness will lead me to fall. And without Jesus, I will fall. I will fall back to my generational sin. I'm just that weak. I'm that broken. But if I see healing as something that's continual and is always going, it makes Jesus add more dimensions and more color to my life, which is why I need him every single day. Frank Labock's Game of Minutes is the practice of doing life with God. It's no longer about doing things for Him, but it's about doing things with Him. It's about being intentional in doing all that we do with God. What he's trying to like illustrate is this thing called practicing the presence of God. It's a continual thing. It's a collective reorganization of our entire being towards God. The compartments that we might live our lives by, we, we tend to live our lives in compartments. And it's about bringing all those together, integrating them to becoming one cohesive life that it's centered around Jesus. This world, this life teaches us we gotta compartmentalize. You have your church life, you have your family life, you have your work life, you have your, your friend life, your sports life, whatever. But that's not the way life's supposed to be because then we're one way this way, we're one way this way, we're, we're inconsistent and we're lost. Practicing the presence of God means hey, let's bring it back to its original design. We're one person following Jesus, and it's about him. Because without him, we're going to go back and compartmentalize because we feel when things are in compartments, we can control them better. There is no greater fulfillment than to live a life in union with God. For us to move from being aware of God's presence to living in his presence. This is what kingdom living is all about. This is what the abundant life is all about that Jesus talks about. Our depth and intimacy with Jesus become it becomes our, our number one priority. So when we bring spiritual disciplines like reading our Bible, going to church, uh, practicing generosity, whatever it is, it just allows us to continue to receive more of God's spirit in our lives. That's all those things. There are means to an end. There are means to help draw us closer to the Father, to experience the Father, the love of the Father, to receive more of His Spirit in us. And naturally, we slowly become the people that God intended us to be all along. It just happens. We no longer need to define ourselves by what we do or even need to identify us as anything, like we no longer have to walk around and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm this or that. People begin to experience the living God through us. It's radical how that happens. In one of his journal entries, Frank LeBocq talks about his personal transformation, how he was able to smooth, how he was able to find, Bridge those gaps and those challenges and win the hearts of the moral tribe. He says, I must confront these moros with a divine love which will speak Christ to them, though I never use his name. They must see God in me, and I must see God in them. Not to change the name of their religion but to take their hand and say, come, let us look for God. What a beautiful story of transformation. A transformation that is also available to us. God's presence in our lives can do miracles. It can do the impossible. It can bring healing. It can bring reconciliation. But only God can do that. It can and it will resurrect the dead to life. And it will do it and it can do it in every single one of our lives if we're willing and able to. And allow the Spirit of God to enter into those hidden, those hurt, even lost parts of our souls. It all rests in our hands. Those are the windows that we can open. Will you allow yourself to be consumed with Jesus? Will you allow yourselves to integrate all of who you are and allow the Spirit of God to reorient us back to Him? So what is Jesus inviting you to today? did the Holy Spirit speak to you today? What is Jesus inviting you to specifically today? I want to close with this. One of the reasons why practicing the presence of God is not just important but it's essential for us as followers of Jesus is because this practicing His presence, inviting the Spirit, inviting His Spirit, is the groundwork, It's the ground zero for true hope. We move from noticing and being aware of God's presence to being people that are living in His presence, not because of our circumstances, but because we know that the Spirit of God is inside every single one of us. Hope, true hope, becomes rooted in who Jesus is and not on our situations, not in our circumstances, not in the things that we lack and we don't have, but in who Jesus says he is. Because we've moved on from knowing about him, doing things for him, to not doing things with him and allowing him to meet us in our own depths. This is prayer. This is prayer. That is why prayer is essential as followers of Jesus. Prayer is the means in which we move from being aware to living in his presence. Prayer is what forges the union between us and God. Just like Jesus, prayer becomes who we are, not just something that we do. Like Frank LeBac, we can begin to engage in the game of minutes where we allow ourselves to think about Jesus every minute of every day. If you're looking for a starting point, you can start by simply selecting one hour of the day and in that hour try to see how many minutes of that hour you can remember Jesus for at least one minute. In other words... How do you bring Jesus to mind for one second out of every 60 seconds? I think I have enough. I, um, I, have, I have a gift for you guys. Because it's not easy. I know it's not easy. A lot of people think that as pastors we're like monks and the minute we leave here we'll go on to like a cave and just think about Jesus and just pray about Jesus and just look at our Bibles and that's all we do that's not true (laughs) as many of you guys know like I have actually in this season of our lives I have moved on to care for my daughter full-time to care for my family full-time And in between her 30 minutes to an hour naps, I rush into my office and I try to write a sermon for us. I don't always think about God. It's hard. Sometimes I don't sleep as much as I want to. Sometimes I don't get to run. Sometimes I don't get to eat. Sometimes I don't get to do certain things that I'm used to, I'm accustomed to. So my mind goes off of there. But I know the difference when I do when I am intentional about thinking about God, allowing his spirit to transform me, to fill me, and how I act with them, than when I don't. It's a huge difference. My children, my wife can attest to it. When I'm restless, when I'm cranky, when I'm angry, whatever. She'll say, tell me, you didn't spend time with God today, huh? I didn't. Like it's noticeable. So I've had to. I've been practicing this thing called the breath prayer. I talked about it almost a year ago. A breath prayer is just something in Scripture. It's, it's the same thing about practicing the presence of God. You know, you breathe in and you say half the prayer, and as you breathe out, you say the other half. When we we're doing our silent prayer earlier today, that's what I was praying. That's what I was praying. It's like like breathing, right? Breathing becomes automatic. It becomes natural. So does our prayer life. But we need to be intentional about that. Anyways, the gift I have for you is I carry with me this wooden cross. It's in my pocket. When I'm teaching, I'm I'm, I'm always touching it. Or when I don't have it, I'm always like, I'm freaking out. Because to me, this is just a gentle reminder to think about Jesus. That's all this cross is. There's nothing holy about it. There's nothing special about it. I mean, aside that it's mine, it is special to me. But it's, it's just a reminder. It's a reminder. And it's been with me for a couple years now. So much so that even earlier today, as I was preparing, Micah got it, ran around the house and said, look at the cross, look at the cross, look at the cross daddy. This is my cross, right? I was like, hey, sure buddy, I'll get it when you forget about it. It's special to me, it's just a reminder. So I think I have enough, but I, I have some at home I, my gift to you is take one and, and hopefully this is just a gentle reminder for you to practice the presence of God throughout your week. Maybe you carry it in your pocket. Maybe you put it in your in your car or maybe right next to your Bible. The point is for you to carry it with you. And as you remember, it's like, okay, I like it. The breath prayer that I use is, Lord Jesus Christ, My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. Or Jesus Christ, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. That's my breath prayer. That's my breath prayer. It's just Jesus Christ, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. And I'll repeat that as I breathe, as I breathe, as I breathe. For you, you might need something. So I would suggest that you do this. In Jesus Christ, my soul finds fill in the blank. In Jesus Christ, my soul finds healing. Would you mind passing these out? In Jesus Christ, my soul finds forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, my soul finds worth. Or if you have a favorite passage of the Bible, but it's my, this is my favorite, condense it into five, six words and let that be your breath prayer. Friends, this Being people of prayer is how we're going to change this world. It's how healing, reconciliation is going to take place in this world. It's not going to be by our strength. It's going to be by the power of God. Because at the end of the day, God gets the glory for the life change that takes place, that will take place in this world, in this city. As you can tell I'm a little passionate about this. Guys, I love you guys. I really do. I really do. I believe in what the Spirit of God is doing in and through this community. Not just because I've read it in a book, but truthfully, from the bottom of my heart, because I am literally on my knees every day Allowing the Spirit of God to work through me because I know I need Him. Every single day. Would you pray with me? Amen.